You're listening to That's the Industry Podcast, episode number two. Today we are talking about something that I feel gets glazed over in the entertainment industry, and that is your mental health and your mental well-being. And that's why I'm sitting down with a licensed psychologist today, and we're going to talk about celebrities who lost their battle with depression, and we're also going to talk about signs to look for if somebody is depressed, and also I'm going to provide some resources for yourself or someone in need. Stay tuned. You're listening to That's the Industry with Thomas Jordan. That's the Industry. The podcast that takes you inside all the aspects of the entertainment industry directly from the people who are making it happen. And now, your host, Thomas Jordan. What's going on, everyone? Thomas Jordan here. Today, we are talking about mental health in the entertainment industry. And to help me is Wendy. She is the CEO and licensed psychologist here at Grow Counseling in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm super stoked to get into this because I have so many questions about the mental health capacity of people in the entertainment industry, actors, musicians, things like that. Wendy, how are you? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great having you. So kind of real quick, how did you how did you get into this? Um, well, I think that even at an early age, I found that all of my friends were telling me their problems. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I thought, you know, there's there's must be something here. And, um, you know, was in school for an obscenely long amount of time uh, and ultimately graduated uh, with a degree in psychology and got licensed and started a private practice in Atlanta. And so I've been in the field for about 20 years and I absolutely love it. I love what I get to do every single day. So you have some experience. 20 years is a... I have a little experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. And and we talked about this a little bit. So, And what is it like to be the CEO of a company? Well, there's a lot of juggling balls. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like a lot of days I'm just keeping, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, plate spinning balls, juggling. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I love is being able to, to see the new therapists that are coming into the field and be able, being able to help train them and um, take the knowledge that I've gained over the last 20 years and, and really be able to help them become excellent therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that part of it. And there's also a part of me that that really likes the, the business side of things. So it's kind of a nice yeah. balance. I end up seeing clients about half the time and then running the practice about half the time. Gotcha. And do you know your why? Like why you started doing this or like why you're passionate about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the biggest and simplest answer to that is I want to help people be the best versions of themselves. Um, I think a lot of people move through life with an unrealized better version of themselves inside. And, um, you know, we all go through stuff. Some one of my clients the other day said, "This isn't the trauma Olympics. Like, <laughs> yeah. There is not a winner here." You know, but whether it feels like a big thing or a small thing, we're all affected by things that we encounter in life, our families, or um, addiction issues, or life events, or trauma, and. Um, those things can really impact the way that we see ourselves, the way that we feel about ourselves, and ultimately um, the the version that we become. And I love helping people kind of tap into that the best version of themselves yeah. possible and really start to live that out. Do you realize that it's possible that you save lives uh, to some degree? 
Like oh, how, do, how does that affect you? Yeah, I mean, it's, at, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to walk with people through some of the darkest times in their life. And it's, it is not unusual for me to hear from a client um, after they've kind of moved through something to a better place that, um, you know, they wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for me or for one of the therapists that they worked with. So, you know, it's not every day, every hour that we're saving people's lives, but I think what we do adds up cumulatively mm. and without a doubt, um, you know, there, there are people that not only are living different lives now than they, they did before, but are alive and wouldn't have been otherwise. And I think that's amazing. And I can't imagine what type of feeling you would feel like do you know what kind of comes over over you like can you describe the feeling when somebody does say that to you um I mean I I think actually it's really humbling Mm -hmm. um to know that something that I was able to do um a skill that I've spent time refining and and a way to show up and be with people in a hard who are who are at the darkest point in their life a lot of times um, that that's something that really provides a bridge to life and, and to happiness. And um, I, I think I actually feel really humbled when people share that with me. Yeah. And as great as that is, I mean, it's like with a lot of things, the highs are high and the lows are low. Um, have you ever treated somebody or been treating somebody or even trained somebody who's treating somebody who has some like super dark issues and like, the worst happens like they you know um and decide to end their life does does that that's got to happen yeah it does it does i mean you know we are we therapists work hard and we show up and we do our best um but at the end of the day you know we're we're not superheroes we're not magicians um and the the hard reality is that people if they really want to can find a way to take their life. Um, and it's a sobering reality to have to live with that. I'm going to show up and I'm going to bring my best and I'm going to do absolutely everything I can. But at the end of the day, that might not be enough. Um, and you, you have to kind of find a way to balance that with, um, holding hope for clients that they can get better and, and helping them see that there's a path to life and happiness. Is there a form, is there ever a form of guilt that comes with that? I mean, especially for people who may be just starting out. Sure. I mean, it can be extremely hard. Um, I know therapists who've left the field because of it. Um, I think that what is really important is to have, um, mentors and supervisors and colleagues that you can be honest with yeah. and that can help share that that burden, you know, and kind of process the case with you and, you know, help you think, is there something I could have done differently, you know, from a learning perspective, mm-hmm. but also normalize that people who, who come in who are dealing with thoughts about self-harm or suicide are, are in an incredibly dark place. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times they're, they are um, intervening um, is challenging because sometimes they've already made decisions. Yeah. Um, and so we, we don't always get to intervene with somebody at a point when we can change the path that they're on. But a lot of times we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when people reach out and they're having suicidal thoughts or thoughts about self-harm and they want to get better, we can help them. And so that's, that's, I think that balances out those difficult feelings. Mm-hmm that you were talking about. And I know this last month was Suicide Prevention Month, which I think is great. But then again, it's like, I feel like every month should be Suicide Prevention Month, right. you know? Right. It's like, we all want to look <laughs> right. out for, we all want to look out for each other. <laughs> totally. Um, but just to kind of really get into it, I mean, you know, 
with especially in the entertainment industry, whether it's an actor, a public figure, we're all people at the end of the day. Where does this sort of depression come from or where does it stem from? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, generally speaking, we would say that depression comes in two forms. It's either a organic kind of biochemical reaction going on in our body um, or and or it can be contextual. So you've you know, you've you've lost a job, you've lost a loved one, you're you're grieving something, you've gone through a lot. Um, and so we see situations where it's one or the other. We see a lot of situations where it's both. Um, but it's important to really understand what you're dealing with and and where the depression is coming from in order to help meet people in the best way possible. Sometimes someone needs medication to help, um, but medicating somebody who really needs help with their context or their situation is probably not going to be as effective as actually helping them figure out how do we change their context? How do we give them some tools that they need or um, help them shift something that they've been doing, a pattern or, or move through a circumstance? And when you, you know, and when you medicate people, it's just like, it's almost kind of scary because you do like, cause since there's so many like so many outlets out there, so much information out there. And I feel like if they get on one thing or somebody gets on one thing that could possibly lead to another or like an addiction problem or just, it's like, the, like how do you balance something like that yeah. and prevent something like that from happening? Sure. So you touch on a, a misconception that I think a lot of people hold. And so okay. I'm so glad you brought it up. Um, medication that we would give somebody for depression is not addictive. Okay. So it, it's not an upper, it's not a downer. It's, um, I really think of it like a supplement. If you were low and say, for example, vitamin D, mm -hmm. if you took a supplement, it would just bring you up to the level of vitamin D that you need. You wouldn't be high up on vitamin D, <laughs> right? Um, depression medication is really similar. We, a lot of times are missing some serotonin or some of the other neurotransmitters that we need. And I have a whole long rabbit I could go in on why I think that is. But the reality is a lot of Americans are low in, in some of these neurotransmitters. And so we don't give people neurotransmitters to get them high. When you, when you take um, a, a serotonin, it really just helps you get back to the level of serotonin that you needed before. It's the reason that you don't see Lexapro sold on the street, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not a real fun drug. Um, it just gives you what you're missing. So I, I always suggest to people that they start with a psychiatrist um, because psychiatrists are medical doctors who specialize in psychotropic medication, which is a fancy way of saying drugs that help you feel better. Yeah. Um, and then what I find my role is a lot of times with people is a coach. And so I'm meeting with them probably more often than their psychiatrist is. And so I'm asking them, you know, how are you feeling? Are you noticing any differences? Do you have any side effects? Um, sometimes the paradox is that if people have had some suicidal ideation, when they start feeling better, they start feeling unstuck is actually when they have the energy to do something. And so, um, that's one of the things that I'm always on the lookout for is like, hey, you know, what are your thoughts? Let's talk about those. Uh, let's bring them into the room so that you don't feel alone in those. And then let's pay attention to how your energy is and, and where you might be going. So I think it's really important to have a therapist or a psych psychologist involved at the same time that you have a psychiatrist who's really focusing just on the medication. Gotcha. And with creatives like 
actors, musicians, things like that in the creative space. What would you say? I mean, where does that stem from? Because in everybody, I feel like on a surface level, everybody sees that they have it all. They've got the money, they got the cars, they got the fame, they've got it all. But then, you know, the you know they end up taking their own life, and everyone's just kind of sitting there, like wondering how this happened. Like, for example, like Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. like just genius just super funny brought joy to so many people but man there was just some deep rooted stuff there and it's mm-hmm. like people i myself included want to know like how how like what do you think happened yeah. i mean you, you've been in this for 20 years so it's mm-hmm. like is it does it all stem from the same place or like where where does it even start yeah i i think obviously every person's different but Every celebrity is a human being, you Mm -hmm. know, and so we all struggle with human being things, Um, you know, from time to time. If you live long enough, you're probably going to have some depression. Uh, Statistics would show that if you live long enough, you're probably going to have some suicidal ideation at some point or you're going to think about hurting yourself. Um, So I think the first thing to remember is that celebrities are human beings, too. They are no different than you and I are. Um, I I think one of the things that really is different about the life experience of someone who's a celebrity or in the spotlight um, is that there's this kind of bubble that they end up living in. And so there are very few places where they can let their guard down and really be honest and real and say, hey, I'm struggling with this without it getting, you know, reprinted in the media and their fan base and the this and that. They have to think about how to, you know, spin it and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that what happens when we, we end up living in those kind of bubbles is we, we hold things back. They become secrets. I always say to my clients, secrets grow in the dark. That's where, that's where they grow. And so things get bigger and scarier and harder when you're dealing with it alone. And I, I think it's really important that we start pushing our culture um, to be better about talking about these kind of things. And that when somebody says, hey, I'm having a hard time, it's not sensationalized. It's just embraced because that's who we are as people. And, and if we can get to a point where we can cheer each other on through those things, I think that what we'll see is a huge decrease in the number of people that reach this breaking point like you were talking about where it just comes out of the blue. Yeah. You know, I think about if somebody like Robin Williams had really been able to get some help and feel supported and, and to be able to be transparent and vulnerable about what was going on, like might there have been an opportunity for us to intervene and be able to help in that situation. Do you think it's hard for people to ask for help? Yeah. Isn't it hard to, for you to ask for help? Like <laughs> Me personally, no, because I'm want i that type of person where I just want to get it figured out and taken care of. And if I have to take something to make it go away or make it better, let's let's save some time and let's get it done. Um, but for... Uh, no, I think it's hard for... I, I think it's hard. I think people feel broken. They feel weird. They wonder if I'm the only one who's dealing with this. They wonder what people are going to think of them. They feel shame. You know, shame drives us to try to be perfect and have it all together. And um, you know, to kind of say, oh, there's nothing to see here. Keep moving. Um, I think people are afraid that if they acknowledge something, maybe there isn't a way to fix it, like you were talking about, or a way to deal with it. Like maybe if I acknowledge it, it becomes a big hairy monster. And then I just have to live with this big hairy monster. I think I'll keep my head in the sand. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think a lot of different things. I I think a lot of times people don't know who to ask. You know, when when there's something going on, it's like, do you ask your friend that's an architect or a, you know, designer? Hey, I'm dealing with depression. I don't know what to do about it. 
Um, so I think it's it's kind of normalizing these conversations that will ultimately help people ask for help. Yeah, because I talk to a lot of creatives in the creative space, especially in the Los Angeles area, and a lot in what I've kind of come to is like a lot of people feel alone. Yeah. And like, it's just, it's almost one of those things. It's like the mixture of the problem being alone and lost is just, I feel like a, like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And gosh, I feel like you're describing our culture these days. I think that all of the social media we have is not bad in and of itself, but I think what happens is that it, it is a counterfeit um, type relationship. People feel like they're really engaged with people because of these interactions. But when you think about it, it's counterfeit intimacy. You know, it's not the same thing as like you and I sit down across the table actually talking about something. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing as, you know, being doing life with somebody and, and being able to say, hey, you know, dude, it seems like you're not doing great. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what that's done, not not that alone, but that contributed with other things, um, you know, has led to this sense. I, I think if you ask most people in our culture, to some degree, they would say that they feel isolated. Mm-hmm. You know, our just kind of community spaces are dwindling. You know, you think back years and years ago when people used to meet at the ballpark or they used to meet, you know, at the local restaurant. And I think because of the size of our cities, because of the time people spend in cars commuting, because of the focus on work, because of technology, um, people are living more and more in these like little bubbles that kind of don't bump into each other very much. And that's hard. I, yeah. just, I think we're hardwired for relationships. And we're hardwired for connection. And not having that causes parts of us to, to struggle and start to really... Um, I think, you know, decompose. Yeah. And it's weird because, I mean, in the media, especially with social media, it's like everybody knows, like for Instagram, for for instance, everyone's living their best life, but half those people are full of crap. (laughs) And it's like we Only half. Only half. Oh, yeah. Right. (laughs) I'm trying to be nice here. Um, But it's like people know, but then they do it anyway. I feel like, you know, if you're alone and you've got all these issues, do you think there's people who are masters at hiding it? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, and, and I, I kind of think of it like bubble wrap, right? Like, uh-huh. you know, you sort of put a little bubble around something, then you move on to the next thing and there's some pain or woundedness or something that's hard or a feeling. And if you, you don't have time to deal with it or don't know how you kind of put a little bubble around that. And ultimately you end up with a life that has all these little pockets, but no real connection between any of the things. Um, and, and I, you know, I think that there's probably also a personality piece that comes with this because you, you think about, you know, my experience of creatives and, you know, I don't know what yours is, but I think a lot of them are really feeling driven. When, when you think about personality factors with people, you tend to have people who are either feeling driven or thought driven. Um, people who are thought driven are like hyper analytical, um, you know, really logical. And people who are feeling driven tend to be more obviously motivated by feelings, mm-hmm. um, which I think is where some of this am- amazing creativity comes from. Um, the ability to kind of channel, you know, other people or show up and, and motivate a huge crowd of people, inspire, you know. But it also comes with, a, I think, a little bit darker side because it can be hard to mal- to manage. Even within a normal range, the higher highs are high and the lower lows 
can be pretty low and pretty dark. And is it the same like in every industry? Because if you think about it, like with actors, musicians, or people in the creative space, I feel like the highs can be insanely high. We talked about the lead singer from Linkin Park. Like, you know, you have millions of fans, like you're on stage and like the high from that, I I can only imagine what that's like to just be right. in an arena full of people, you know, on a national level, you got millions of eyeballs looking at you. So you're high, that serotonin, I'm sure is like in full force, <laughs> but then it's like you're hot. And then, you know, creatives go through this like downward where it's like, what, okay, you're hot now, but now you don't work for four years. Yeah. And then that's when you see people mm-hmm. like turn to alcohol, mm-hmm. turn to drugs, mm-hmm. turn to both or god knows mm-hmm. what so is it mm-hmm. the same i mean is it the same for every industry or is this is the entertainment industry would you say in your professional opinion like more likely for stuff to kind of go wrong because the highs are high and the lows are so low. oh i yeah i think it absolutely makes things harder i think when there's some kind of a predictable routine mm-hmm. um obviously you can get into trouble if routines are too predictable and there's never any energy in life but I think for the most part, it's easier for people to manage ups and downs in, in life when they know what to expect. And when you look at tour life, you know, or you look at, um, you know, working on a, a movie or television set and there's um, a lot of intense work and then all of a sudden there's nothing. Those transitions are stressful. Even, even if they're positive stress, it's still stress. And so you add that on top of, like you were saying, the sort of, you know, going from a high high to a low low or going from a lot of connection to no connection. Um, it's almost like, you know, you're recreating your life all the time, constantly trying to figure out, okay, what's next? Let me regroup. Um, and that ultimately in and of itself can take a toll on people. So it's like, don't get into the entertainment industry, <laughs> right? Is well, the, in fairness, yeah. I would say a lot of industries have their own particular challenges, right? Like there are some things we're not talking about that are our strengths of entertainment industry. Um, but the, we're, we're focusing on the things that are challenges. And a lot of industries have similar kinds of, of challenges. You know, you look at professional athletes. Um, you look at people who are kind of startup entrepreneurs or nonprofit world, you know, where there's kind of a lot of intensity and then nothing, or there's a sense of loneliness or, you know, it, it can apply sort of in different industries, I think. Yeah. And I know you work with a lot of people in the entertainment industry. Is there like a similar, like, do they all kind of have the same story or is it generally all different? I think it's all different. Um, I think as human beings, we have a lot of the same story, um, meaning we want to find connection. We um, look for ways to make life more comfortable and to cope with difficulties. And, you know, no matter how good the decisions are that we make, we're going to we live in an arbitrary and capricious world. Right. And Mm so we're going to end up encountering challenge and difficulty and potential trauma. You know, we're going to be disappointed by people. We're going to be overwhelmed by things. And so kind of collectively, I think our stories are really similar. But when you dig down to an individual level, you know, everybody's dealing with something unique. Um, With like actors and musicians is, can you talk about like, obviously not use the person's name, obviously, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but like, can you kind of talk about what like what somebody's maybe been going through recently? You know, I think that 
people, well, maybe people wouldn't be surprised. I was going to say, I think people would be surprised that if we hadn't titled this a conversation about creatives and celebrities, that if I were to tell you stories about clients, they would sound just like stories of everyone else that you know. I I think that's one of the things that strikes me when someone comes in. Um, I work with a lot of high profile business people that you know, you, you would see on TV or read about in the paper. And I'm sure people have ideas of who these people are, just like we have ideas about who celebrities are. But when they come in, they talk about the same things that everybody else talks about. You know, they talk about trouble in relationships, or they talk about feeling anxious, or they talk about, um, you know, not being able to sleep. And sleep is super important because our bodies repair when we sleep, you know. And so they're kind of all these things that are pretty common elements of what it means to be alive these days. Um, so I think it would be, I think it would be um, kind of in some ways unimpressive what they talk about because it would be the kind of thing we would talk about in counseling. Yeah. Does anything shock you anymore when you hear things that people are talking about? Um, I, I very rarely get surprised anymore. Um, I remember early on in, in my career and when I teach new therapist, I always say, okay, it's a win if you just don't run screaming from the room, like just stay in the room with the person. But the more that you do that, the more you realize like, oh, this is, I, there's a way for me to connect with this. You know, I may not be struggling with a heroin addiction right now, but gosh, I can understand what it means to be, um, obsessed with something, you know, and I can kind of see the pathway that you get to from starting out being consumed or obsessed with something to, you know, having a full blown addiction. So I, I think when we start to find ways to really identify with people and empathize, um, that sort of sensationalized factor of like, Oh my God, I'm shocked and appalled at this thing really goes away because, you know, you, you kind of understand how somebody got to where they did. And addiction's a huge part too. I mean, a lot of, you know, people in the entertainment industry and the creative space have addictions to whether it's alcohol, drugs, sometimes both, sometimes God knows what, but where does, where does the addiction stem from? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if you ask people from different perspectives, they'd probably give you different answers. Mm -hmm. The way that I like to look at it is that addictions ultimately are just a coping mechanism. They are not the core problem most of the time. They are a symptom of somebody trying to find a way to be okay. Um, So, you know, most of the time people haven't started out to just be a cocaine addict or a heroin addict what has happened is that they feel they they have a feeling they feel uncomfortable or they have a circumstance that they're trying to manage and and the drugs do well enough they 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 work well enough that it gets them through whatever it is and so ultimately they go back to that thing cuz it worked well enough and so you know it's the same same idea of a coping mechanism it's just a not a healthy mm-hmm. coping mechanism um, and it's interesting because, you know, when clients come in and I can kind of empathize with them and more often than not, they break down in tears because they're, they're like, yeah, this is that's exactly my experience. I didn't want to be in this place. I didn't want to be dependent on this. But, you know, I was dealing with anxiety. And so this helped me overcome that. Or I was dealing with depression and this helped give me a boost or, you know, in a room full of people, I didn't know what to say. And the drugs kind of helped. They were my friend for a little while. Um, and so a lot of times the work that I do with people is not so much focused on the addiction. It's a lot focused on the underlying root of what got them to the point 
that they felt like they needed something. Because if we can fix the underlying, um, the root cause, um, then then the symptom a lot of times is is either non-existent or much easier to deal with. What's typically the root then? Um, I, like I was saying, it could be anxiety, it could be depression, it could be um, a sense of shame. A lot of mm-hmm. times when people feel shame, they just want to get away from that feeling. Um, it could be um, a sense of guilt or self-blame. It could be you know, something that stemmed from kind of their early family years. And so maybe they experienced a trauma. Um, so it could be a lot of things that people are either trying to live with or get away from or kind of numb, numb out around. Um, and, and the interesting thing is that most of the time, if people can turn and face those things, they're, they don't end up being as scary or as big as they have imagined them to be. And we see a lot, or just me personally, I just, when I think of musicians, I auto automatically think of, you know, uh, drug problems. And there was a recent, um, a documentary on Netflix with um, it followed Motley Crue. It's called The Dirt. It's actually really good. Awesome. Uh, I'll have to watch it. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's intense. But like, and then I just go down the rabbit hole of like, the, they were all addicted to drugs. But it's like, how do when you talk to musicians, like, are you always wonder? It's like, okay, because I feel like in society, like smoking weed or like doing mushrooms or something is like kind of like normal like uh, everyone does it from time to time or everyone tries something but then i feel like even with cocaine i feel like it's been like oh it's just a little coke eh. but then i feel like my at least for me personally when i hear somebody starts getting addicted to like heroin where you're literally sticking a needle in your arm like i've just never wondered how it gets to that point um, have, have musicians who I'm sure you've spoken to who have done it, do they ever tell you how that happens? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest issue there is tolerance. So what starts out like you were alluding to is something small. Ultimately, that thing that worked in the beginning doesn't work anymore. And so you have to you have to do more of it or you have to get an intenser version of it or you have to escalate to the next level of something. Um, and so, you know, People don't start smoking weed thinking ultimately they're going to end up doing heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everyone does, yeah. right? But the people that do, I think consistently what we see is some level of tolerance. And and that might be a kind of a genetic DNA thing where they, they just, it's, it's that switch that flips and they just need more and more and more. Um, but a lot of times what I find is that when you do you know, you're doing a little, a little drug use, so to speak, things that, you know, you would have attended to in your life, your career, your family, your relationships, whatever, maybe get a little neglected. And then there's some small fires that start, right. And so then you just kind of do more drugs to sort of avoid the fires and the fires become bigger fires. And ultimately, when somebody comes up for air, they look around and it's just, you know, dumpster fire everywhere and it's overwhelming. And so they just kind of stay in this path of, I'm going to keep my head down and do the thing that helps me numb out and just kind of try to try to put blinders on. So that's one of the things when I work with people, um, I really try to give them some hope like, Hey, I'm going to walk through this with you and I'm going to help you repair these things. And there's a path forward here for you. I know what feels kind of like death and destruction everywhere, Right now, we can start to systematically start to repair and, um, you know, bring life to places that were dead before. Yeah. And I think with her, is it called chasing the dragon where they're mm-hmm. like chasing yeah. that high? Is it possible 
like I and I'm not speak because I, I I don't know anything about doing heroin. Um, but like if they're on that path where they're just like chasing the next high, is it almost inevitable for them to just keep trying new stuff, or is it imp- and is it impossible for them to realize what's going on and get help immediately? I think even if they realize what's going on, there's a tension around getting help because they know that getting help means they're going to have to back away from this thing that at least temporarily feels like it it, it fills a void or meets a need or, or helps them get away from something. So that process of letting go of something that is kind of whispered to them like, hey, I'm your only lifeline feels really overwhelming. Um, but that being said, you know, I... I, I I think that when you play it out, if someone continues with that kind of drug use, ultimately, um, you know, the place that you end up is probably overdose. Mm-hmm. You, you just can't continue to do more and more and more without it. Yeah. And we serious. Yeah. And even in the music industry, you hear about musicians overdosing mm-hmm. and then they're still like addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, did they, do you think a lot of them maybe feel like it's almost impossible to, stop and then that's why they just keep going and that's that's what like addiction is that you just can't get enough and you Mm -hmm. just keep going and going and going yeah i think you're exactly right about that yeah um and even i see with actors i'm just off the top of my head i'm thinking of philip seymour hoffman you know great actor and he i believe don't quote me on this but like he i think overdosed with heroin and it's just and that's another one of those stories where it's like you just see these talented people and it's like you can't imagine like what's what they're going through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we have an idea of who they are, but it's not a, an accurate version of who they actually are as a person. You know, we know this kind of version that they've projected, right? When they're on the, on the stage and they project something, we know what that is. But in terms of like what their hopes and fears are and what they deal with, you know, on an internalized basis, we don't, we don't know we're standing in the audience or we're watching a screen, you know, mm-hmm. um, in the same way that like, you know, the stay at home mom feels un- unseen or the CEO that feels like he has to ha- always have all this shit together and show up perfectly and make all the best decisions and, you know, can't be real. You know, I, th- I think we need to cultivate uh, a conversation and an environment that invites people into um, realness and authentic authenticity and, you know, soft landings. Do you feel like everybody wants to be seen and heard? I think that ultimately people want to be connected and being seen and heard as part of that. I think that there, if you walked up and asked somebody like, do you want to be seen and heard? (laughs) Some people would probably be like, I'm good. (laughs) Get away from me, please. Crazy person. Yeah. But, but being seen and heard is part of being in relationship with people. And so the more healthy relationships that we cultivate that are safe and that promote authenticity and connection, the, the reality is people are going to be seen and heard and they're going to want to be seen and heard by those people who they know they can trust. Yeah. And it's interesting because you mentioned relationships, especially if people, I mean, I can only imagine what people's home life is because the, you know, like the Robin Williams or the lead singer of Lincoln Park. I mean, he had a family, you know, I mean, is the, what do you, that's one thing I think people, the media steers away from is like what's happening at home. Um, 
do musicians usually come to you? Do the does it is it just them or is it the family too? You know, any chance that we have the opportunity to work with what we would call as a system, it's it's whoever else is playing a role in that person's life, I always welcome that opportunity because we don't exist in a vacuum, right? Like we can help, I always say, you know, I can help one person get, you know, to a better place, but it's like all the pieces in a clock, they all turn in a certain kind of way. And if one person, like let's say somebody um, goes away to rehab or does some intense work with me and they start turning a different direction, all the pieces in the clock are going to come springing out because people are used to interacting with this person in a certain way. And so anytime we can create change within the bigger system, um, it I think that people are going to get better faster and stay better longer. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we know about suicide specifically is that people kind of get tunnel vision when they start to have thoughts about suicide. And so the impact on the families that you are kind of referencing isn't always something that plays a role. They they kind of just get focused on like this unfortunately feels like the only option. And so bringing family members into that process and going, hey, can you imagine how, you know, he's going to feel without a dad or she's going to feel having to parent y'all's children alone like can you see how needed you are and how wanted you are and in these people's lives can sometimes be a real turning point for people and how do you help somebody who doesn't want to be helped well you know I think that we ultimately give people options we try to highlight um, for people um, maybe what they're missing or you know kind of reframe things in a different way that they haven't seen um, and and just give people a path to getting to a different place than they have been. But at the end of the day, we can't force somebody to change. Um, we can offer them hope. Um, one of my supervisors used to say, at the end of the day, we're a vendor of hope. And I, I love that idea of like a little cart, you know, with hope. Yeah. <laughs> There's a little hope for you. Yeah. Um, but if if people don't want that, you know, I also have a really healthy respect for people's right to make decisions and I I don't misconstrue that to say I would encourage them to do anything I'm always gonna fight for somebody and fight for life and you know help help them see that they're valuable and important and the world needs them Um, but I recognize that at the end of the day if they want to make a decision on their own they, they they will always find a way to do that even if you know, we were able to get them into some kind of treatment or hospital or something for a little while. Um, there, there's always a way to that end. So we can't force people to change. We can't help people if they don't want to be helped. But gosh, we're going to do everything we can to try to help them see that they're they're valuable and worth it and important. If people recognize that there is a problem somewhere and the person doesn't want to get help, what is something they can do to possibly like let like them is there is there anything they can say or do to almost try to get the person to get into therapy or just get help yeah it's a great question so I would say a couple of things one is don't give up you know keep keep asking keep prodding keep suggesting um, you know I think those conversations ultimately over time whether whether we wear somebody down or whether they just finally see that we care, um, again, you know, those suicidal ideations are kind of like having blinders on. And so if you get this moment where they're looking at you full in the face and the blinders aren't playing a role, like keep saying, Hey, I care about you. 
I want to help you get some help. I think the other part is, you know, I'm really open with my clients and, and my friends about the fact that I go to therapy. Um, I think being transparent about our own stories and our own struggles helps so that somebody doesn't feel like, oh, hey, I'm the broken one over here. I'm the one with issues. It's like, no, we're all in this together and we all have issues. And, um, you know, mine might be in a better place right now, but they weren't at one time and I needed somebody to help me. And this is what it looked like. Um, I, I think our using our own stories as an invitation to people to get help is incredibly powerful. And why is it such a sensitive issue? Because I know either people listening or I could just see it happening where it's like, you know, because tone matters too. It's like you could say, oh, I want everyone to get help and stuff. But I could just easily see people getting like super defensive and super offended that like, how could you, you know, even think that about me? I don't need help. You know, I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of relationship. Like you earn the right to be able to say things to people. Um, and when you have relational capital with somebody, you can say almost anything when it comes from a place of empathy and care and concern. Um, you know, I, I didn't know you before today, but if I had walked up to you on the street and been like, dude, you seem like a train wreck, you should get some help. Like, that's not really probably going to go very far. But if your friend who's done life with you, who, you know, knows you, comes up and says, hey, you seem to be struggling. Is there anything I can do? You know, I, I got this name of a person. Would you be willing? I'll even go with you. That goes a lot further, right? So I, I think it's really about not telling people what to do. It's about building up relational capital so that when those moments come, we're able to say, hey, this is, I'm going to cash in some of this because it's important enough to me. You're important enough to me that I want to say something that I, I'm going to be okay if you have a, you know, a, a difficult emotion about it because I still care about you. And what are some symptoms to kind of look for if you, or do people just know when people need help or it's like just in case they didn't know, or they were maybe like, kind of questioning it and it's like borderline. So what are some like major symptoms to be looking for? Yeah, that's great. I, I think that it's always okay to say to somebody, Hey, are you okay? You seem off or you seem different or, you know, life seems to be harder now than it was for, before for you. What's going on? So I think that's, you don't have to look for any iconic symptoms to be able to ask that. Um, I always kind of my checklist with people is, you know, do they, are they, I sort of look at behavioral things, you know, are they, are they sleeping differently? Not as much sleeping more, eating more, eating less than they did before. Um, emotionally, do they seem like they just don't care? You know, one of the big things is that people kind of just unplug and disconnect when they get into this bubble of loneliness, isolation, suicidality. Um, and, and a lot of times what you, what you see on the surface is just kind of a disconnection from life. So they used to be really bright. They used to be funny. They used to be around all the time. And then all of a sudden they just kind of start to, to disappear a little bit. Um, another thing is sometimes anger will, will come up, irritation, anger, short fuse. That can, that can um, indicate other things as well. But I think it's always worth asking about because usually it shows that someone's bandwidth is taken up in some way and so there's something else going on under the surface another thing would be you know if somebody starts using substances more you know they're they're kind of everyday social drinking goes to a lot every day or a bottle every night um, or they can't be happy they can't do something without having a cocktail um, that's probably a sign that there's there's something that they're trying to get away from 
And with all the info, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier with all the information out there. How does one see like what's like what's good, what's bad and like, hey, we need to we probably need to see somebody. Um, like an individual, like yeah, they, like if they were to seek help, the right yeah, I mean, Google's yeah. obviously you go to yeah. Google, and it's like oh, da, 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 but it's like how with like how do you know who's good and who's not good? Is it a yeah, whole so trial and error process? That is a great question. Um, we're actually working on a resource for people right now um, that will hopefully help address that. Um, we have a um, a nonprofit that we've started, and one of the goals with that is to help people find therapists that are. Um, the high quality that we've we've vetted to some degree. You know, we can't know everything about them, but we're going to do our best as therapists to go, yeah, this is somebody who seems to know what they're talking about. Um, I would say start by asking your friends, you know? Like, if you know that somebody's been to a therapist, they'll the, usually they'll be happy to hand the number name over to you. Um, I, I always say start with that. Um, you know, if you're involved in a church or a, a um, community organization, a lot of times they have a list of people that they've already vetted and have gotten to know. So I think those are great places to start. Um, there's um, on our website, www.growcounseling.com. Um, there is a list of questions to ask a therapist because we're, we're believers in transparency. And so we put the questions on our website. So when somebody's calling to schedule an appointment for the first time, you know, there's a list of questions that they could ask a potential therapist if they work at Grow. Um, and there's just things like, where did you get your training? Tell me about what you specialize in. Um, you know, are you still under supervision? How do you get direction from, you know, mentors? Or So it, it's a way of kind of just getting the therapist talking so that you you can get an understanding of do they do they sound like they're still connected with some kind of oversight and are they continuing to learn and do they really know what they're doing? Yeah. And lastly, what piece of advice would you have for somebody who's just, who's seeking help? Reach out. I, I would just say, go ahead and make an appointment with somebody. I know it can be scary. Um, it, it can be overwhelming. It's an unknown a lot of times, but usually within the first three minutes of someone being in my office, they say something like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I'm here. I don't know what took me so long. Um, so I would say don't wait, you know, don't wait until things get way off track and really difficult and very hard. Um, you know, go ahead and reach out to somebody. You don't have to have a huge problem in order to go start a conversation. Um, a lot of times I think it's really nice to have kind of a preventative counselor, if you will, you know, where you just kind of go in, you know, you take your car in for tune-ups. Why wouldn't we go in as individuals for a tune-up here and there? And somebody who holds your story and knows kind of where your strengths and weaknesses are. And so then if something does come up, you already have a soft space to go to and, and process and have someone who, who's got your back. Awesome. So where can, where can people get more information about Grow? Uh, Grow Counseling, we are online in a lot of different formats. Um, Grow, G-R-O-W, Counseling, C-O-U-N-S-E-L-I-N-G.com. And can people, if they're listening to this out of state, can they still come to you or do you typically deal straight people in the uh, Yeah, we do our best to be able to connect people with resources. So um, we are happy to, um, we're happy to help. 
Um, you know, we have a lot of blogs on our website, a lot of content um, that's extremely helpful to people. Um, and if they reach out to us and ask for a referral, we'll, we'll do our best. We, we have a network of therapists that we've kind of built over the years. So we'll do our best to connect them with somebody who we know. And if not, kind of hold their hand and help them figure out where they can get some help. All right, everyone, that does it for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It truly means the world to me. If you guys have any questions or comments, you can find me on Instagram at Thomas Jordan TV. But first, I have been writing, shooting, producing, editing my own video to get my dream job as an entertainment reporter in Los Angeles interviewing the stars. Now, that might not be your dream, but if you are in this industry and you are in this field, you are going to need to learn how to write, shoot, and edit, produce your own content. Now, I want to personally train you on these skills so you can create your own journey and make money while doing so. So what I want you to do now is log on to Facebook and request to be in my private Facebook group, on camera professionals once again it is called on camera professionals but wait thomas i really like your stuff i really want to learn from you but i don't want to be on camera don't worry i got you covered in this group i'm going to be doing a live training so that means live tips and tricks i'm going to do giveaways freebies and i'm also going to do personalized training so once again log on to facebook and type in on camera professionals and I'll see you there.